today I am with Camille Hernandez. She has her own podcast called Abolition as Resurrection. Right? Did I? Yeah, yeah, did I get, yeah. And so, um, uh, if you, um, I, I feel like there are so many ways to introduce you, Camille. Um, you are a theo poet, yes, a public educator, an abolitionist, yes. Um, and so, and uh, just kind of little, like little, I don't know. So I think like she was in San Diego this whole week to do a writers retreat, yeah. And then she made it here uh, to, to to be here with us. So super honored to be here. <laughs> And um, today we get to talk about the fun and exciting topic of toxic masculinity in the church. (laughs) (laughs) And I I really can't think of anybody else better to share this conversation than than my friend Camille. Thank you. Um, And so, but before we get into this topic, I just want to mention a couple things real quick. Uh, First of all, happy Father's Day, as, as Miles mentioned. Happy Father's Day to all the dads, the stepdads, foster dads, father-in-laws, um, father figures, spiritual fathers um, that are represented in this room, that, that we carry and celebrate in, in ourselves, and um, we, we honor them. Um, and, but also at the same time, I want to recognize that for some of us, fatherhood is, is complicated. There's some pain associated with fatherhood. Um, and we, we want to be present to that, and, and we hear you and we receive you. Um, and if these are things that, if you feel like you want to like intentionally journey with together, um, let's let's do that together. Um, uh, second thing is, uh, I, I said second thing, but I did one finger. Second thing <laughs> is um, today is a really historical day. Today is uh, the first ever Juneteenth um, as a like official federal holiday, and that's a big deal. Um, and for and especially in the church, I think, because like. In, in one sense, it's something that we definitely celebrate because the like, horrendous sin of slavery is abolished as a nation. Um, but at the same time, it's, 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 worth comp- uh, it's complicated and worth contemplating because um, there's still so much work uh, to be done in, in, that, in that area. So, um, and as an abolitionist, Camille, I would like, and this is a timely, I feel like this might be a God thing, but you know, if there's any like extra perspective you might have on that before we get into this topic, we would love to Yeah, hear it. yeah, so um, chattel slavery is abolished. Hmm. Chattel slavery in the 1800s was abolished because earlier this year in the South, they had found a plantation with undocumented workers from Latin America. So slavery is still happening in this country. Um, and that's something that is really important to understand. And if it's not that wor- version of chattel slavery, it is incarceration, which is another form of slavery. What I love about Juneteenth, aside from the fact that it is just a very black holiday, like, I'm gonna eat so much good food today, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the story of Juneteenth because it was, it. We have this date because it was the day that the last plantations, the last people who were enslaved in that time, found out that they were free. So they like ran to the river and I, I think it's like they took their clothes and they, they just like, with their whole bodies they celebrated. Um, but the thing about it is that they found out two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. So they didn't know they were free for two years. And I, I feel like that's something that we have to hold that's like really indicative of, of this time, that 
we, we can't expect the people who hold our chains to free us or to tell us that we're free. We have to share this information loudly, often, and as soon as possible. So when, when we celebrate Juneteenth, I, I don't know if I read it or I heard it from somebody, and I've been with poets like all last week, so if I like rhyme out of nowhere, I'm <laughs> so sorry. Do you, do you want to snap? <laughs> yeah, like, like, <laughs> I've just been like a very enclosed space. Um, but yeah, the, it was liberate, educate, agitate, right? This is what Juneteenth is all about, that it is, we're constantly moving towards where I believe the kingdom of God is, which is the place of liberation. We have to educate ourselves and each other continuously so we pursue it. And then we have to agitate, we have to stir it up so that we can continue, continue on because the status quo is not the thing that's going to help all of us. We have to disrupt it and disturb it. Yeah. Oh, amen to that. Um, so along with that, we are in the middle of a series called what the heck is the church 2.0? And um, so last week, Matt Stricker just beautifully, prophetically started this series and um, brought up the topic of power dynamics in the church, um, uh, raised some topics to mind, but also just invited us to engage with the Holy Spirit, um, to look within ourselves. And, and so as we enter into this conversation, um, I pray um, that we would, that that would be that kind of space. We're not only having this conversation, but there's something, a conversation that's happening between us and the Holy Spirit all at the same time. Um, so with that, um, we're just going to go straight into it. So um, toxic masculinity, I'm pretty sure you've heard of it. Um, in different cultures, there's different expressions of it. Um, I, I think about just in, in Korean culture, as soon as there's a boy that's um, born, you just say, oh, that's a, that's a changun, means a general. So you automatically attribute son to like a strength, especially if it's a bigger boy. You know, it's like, oh, that's, that's a changun. Like he's, he's big and he's strong and you want him to have these dominant kind of features. In Latino cultures, right, there's like machismo, right? And, and things like that. But um, what, does that, what does that really mean when we say toxic masculinity? So I, I don't claim it to be an expert on this conversation. That's why I lean to you. So, and, um, and so we're here to learn and receive and process all this together. So what, what is, Camille, what is toxic masculinity? Oh, I'm glad I get to be the one to answer this question. Um, I mean that seriously and sarcastically. Um, <laughs> but toxic masculinity is not a trait as much as it is a system um, that is very rooted in patriarchy, right? The, it, it is the reserving all power to the male figure. Toxic masculinity is a system that perpetuates it. Um, and I, I really lean on the teachings of Bell Hooks, who is a black feminist, and she talks about the fact that in order to heal, in order to subvert patriarchy or like dismantle it, break it apart, we have to heal masculinity. Because there's actually like masculinity, like men aren't the enemy. And look, I went to college, I went to like the number one most liberal school in the country. I like top feminists who like did things were my professors. And I, over and over again, they're like, we don't hate men, Camille, like, please, please understand this. Um, it's that we, we love what masculinity could be because masculinity could be collaborative and cooperative, but toxic masculinity takes that away and it reinstates the system of power. And the system of power is really enforced in the absence of emotion 
that we can't connect with each other emotionally. So when we talk about toxic masculinity, there are different systems and different ways that it shows up. And a lot of us think about, like I, I had an abusive dad, so I think about my dad. Um, but like influencer culture on social media, that toxic positivity that you can't even be sad about anything, that's rooted in toxic masculinity because you're not allowing yourself to feel what you need to feel in order to connect with people, in order to realize that you're in a system that's hurting you. Yeah. I wonder if like it has some roots in like it's stoicism too, right, a little bit of like you, you withdraw your emotions so that there's, you achieve this greater good. Yeah. So like, Emotion is secondary, but our achievements and what we are able to make happen, produce, is, is the greater good. And so um, I, um, I, I know theologically, in ancient Greco-Roman culture, right, because of that, like, um, because of traditionally those traits were attributed to men, that just automatically caused a leaning toward men being more superior to inferior. Yeah. yeah. I'm just... I could like spend hours talking boo-boo about Paul. <laughs> oh, Paul. Anyway, <laughs> and the reason why I say this is because in Greco-Roman culture, um, Plato, Socrates, all of these, these like dead philosophical guys, basically. Um, they, white <laughs> these white guys, these dead white guys. They set up the society to be in favor of one type of body. So they said that the young male body is the purest form and everything was made in, in service to the young male body. Um, so if you, are, if you were young but are now old, your, your age is supposed to be in service to the young male body, right? That, that is the supremacy of the male body in Greco-Roman culture, but they, they moved forward with it by creating Stoicism, creating the sense that, like Plato is really big on the fact that your, your mind is different then your heart is different than your body. And we yeah. need to separate our minds because what we think is more important than what we feel and where, where we are. Um, so yeah, this, this rooting in staying away and being, being separated from your own motion, emotions and being rooted in your thoughts, it's, it's very rooted in, in that Greco-Roman philosophy. I mean, over and over again in Western societies, we are constantly recreating the Empire of Rome. America in so many ways is the Empire of Rome. Yeah. And the reason why I said that I could talk boo-boo about Paul um, is because <laughs> even though Paul was, as he claims, like God's chosen, one of God's chosen apostles, um, you can see in his mindset that he's always battling the very embodied texts of the Hebrew Bible. Like the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament is very much about the body and the emotions and what you're feeling and what you're experiencing. But he was raised in Roman society and he was known as one of the greatest philosophers, like Roman philosophers of all time. So when you read the epistles, we look at a, a, a man who is constantly fighting back and forth between like, oh, I'm Jewish, but, but I have been trained to be a Roman. And when he preaches to the Romans, he like preaches to that stoicism in them, but he doesn't go back to being Jewish. And, it, mm. and it's really hard for me to read it because for a few thousands of years later, we're looking at Paul and we're saying, hey, this man is the, is the blueprint of what Christianity is, but he's so deeply embedded in this, this 
culture of toxic masculinity. And he, we're, try, we're watching him trying to find his way out and he doesn't find his way out. And I just think that it doesn't serve the church personally mm. to read Paul's text and think that that is literal instead of seeing a man who's so plagued by being in between both and really trying to find his way out, mm. but ultimately being unable to do yeah. so. I'm really glad you mentioned that because like, I think one of the things that I, I feel like I see when we look at the whole of scripture is um, when we think of Jewish, ancient Jewish philosophy, theology, is a very embodied experience, right? Like all that I'll always see in, in the rituals and sacraments, it's all about how do we embody our faith. And so that there's no disconnection between the mind and the heart. But then when we get to, the, you know, um, when around Jesus' time in Greco-Roman culture, it becomes a dominant culture, dominant philosophy. So we see uh, a compromise of Jewish religious leaders at the time, of like, okay, this is a dominant culture, so let, how do we make this work, right? So there's a lot of compromising. So we start to see some of that in, um, in the philosophy and how they teach, and obviously in, in how they um, just view all of, all of society. And so really kind of, the Jewish religiously just kind of almost uh, forego some of that deeply just um, embodied experience of what it means to follow Christ. And so a lot of that is very toxic, masculine. So, and so kind of, I think that might relate to kind of the next question is like, so how does that kind of fast forward to, it, start, it started then, we already see that in the early, or in Jesus' time, but fast forward 2000 plus odd years later, like how do we see toxic masculinity now in the church, so um, and it's a is a present is how we're seeing. It's not like how we seen, but because it's happening, it's very real, and it's really sad to say, but it's kind of not that hard. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so let's just talk about that a little bit. You can like throw a stone, and then there's yeah, an example. There, yeah, yeah I'm like oh, there it is. <laughs> Whoop, there you yeah. go. Okay, there it is. Yeah. Um, it's like the harder question is how do we not see it? in yeah. the church. Um, there's, not, there's not even a good enough answer for that. But um, it's, so I don't think you guys, you, you, you people know this, everyone here. Sorry, I'm trying to like make sure my language is very inclusive. <laughs> I don't think everyone here knows this, but I, I'm currently writing a book on sexual violence in the church. So um, my poor husband, I love you. My poor husband, I was writing this chapter on purity culture for the past month, and I would just like come into the room and be like, did you know this and this and this? And, he, and he'd just be like, I'm just trying to wash dishes. <laughs> and it's very, very annoying, because all of the ways that we see toxic masculinity in the church has, has deeper roots. And, that it, and, and those deeper roots are tied to um, in our modern day context right now, a lot of it is tied to nationalism, right? Yeah. So in, I'm gonna compare America to Rome again. The Roman Empire was a militaristic, colonial, imperialist entity, right? The Roman Empire took lands, claimed them as their own, took advantage of the people, committed mass genocide, did unspeakable atrocities, all so that their own country could gain money and power. In order for Rome to do that, they had to make the body of the young male the most important thing in society. 
So they created their philosophies around it. They created their theologies around it. They created so much of their, their country, their empire, to be about the young man because that's how the Roman military would thrive off of young men continuing to serve in the military. Now let's talk about America. America is a colonial entity. America has gone into different countries. I'm Southeast Asia. They've gone to my, my home country. They've gone into many countries in Southeast Asia. Right? America has done imperialistic work. America is a military power in the world. How does America do that? One example, Top Gun. The movie just came out, right? In the 80s, they created that movie because they needed more men in the military. It is a recruitment strategy. Now, how does that work in the church is the hard question. One way that I have seen it and that I have studied it in regards to patriarchy is through purity culture. And if we don't know what purity culture it is, is it is the philosophy and the teaching that intercourse is reserved until marriage, into heterosexual marriage. And in Christianity, we have the highest rate of people getting married before they're 25 years old. The thing about purity culture is that it praises the young boys and shames the young girls. And then it raises our children to believe that this is the way, that the boy is in charge of defining whether or not the girl is being tempting, is being sinful, right? That the girl is shamed. And those who don't fall into the category of what is truly, of like what they believe is truly feminine is already sinful. Um, when we talk about purity culture, we talk about the fact that it is a really painful, painful burden to put on boys, teenagers, and men to be the ones that dictate and determine how society is going to serve them because there's no connection, it's all transaction. And I bring that up in regards to patriarchy in the church is because we have to realize when you're raised in an unhealthy church and or a church that's nationalist or a church that's rooted in purity culture, then every relationship you're taught to make is transactional. And we use really pretty words. Like I've, I've been in an unhealthy church for too long. But we've used, we've used really pretty church words, right? We're gonna claim them for the gospel and we're gonna, we're gonna take the next generation, we're gonna do this and we're gonna do that. But behind those words, it was transaction. It was numbers. There was no connection. They would say, we're going after the heart of these people. And once the people converted or were baptized or did what they wanted them to do, there was no follow-up, there was no relationship. And I want us to think about toxic masculinity in that way. It is the ways that we are taught to make relationship transaction instead of transformational. Because for it to be transformational, we have to be able to say, I see you, I'm here with you. And even if I disagree with you, and even if it hurts, I still wanna stick with you. And that's a lot harder to say than Let's claim them for Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, that claiming language, especially in the name of evangelism, 
a lot of it really is like colonial language, imperialistic language. I, like, I, I can't remember, just so many times growing up, both in like a Presbyterian context and a, um, a charismatic context, there's so much like, like bringing in God's kingdom, we're gonna invade, like invade this, I've heard invade this neighborhood, invade this community so many times. And that is very colonial in itself. Yeah, it's like so icky. Um, and so there's that, but also even the other side of it, like it's kind of hidden, it's more subversive, like so language, like toxic masculinity hides behind words like uh, submission and obedience. And those are good things, but like the way that it's been um, distorted and, and misleveraged, um, complementarianism is another big thing, right? Like we're like, yeah, oh, I mean, complementarian yeah. wasn't, yeah. wasn't a word until the 80s, so whatever. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and, and so I, I think of like, yeah, it, practical ways that we see that, it, like, for, like we, we see in the church, like churches tend to love like these domineering figures. I just started, like it took me a really long time to start listening to the Marcel podcast because like I felt like it was gonna be so triggering. So like I had to like, work my way up to it. Yeah. The first episode, one of the things I talk about is like, the pastor of Mars Hill really set the tone to pave the way for the churches to be open to someone like Donald Trump, who's that kind of like yeah. jock kind of language, right? And it's like very, again, catering to the younger male. Um, and so it just, it just kind of, it's, it's all a part of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the suckiest part is that all of that, so much of that is done in the name of Jesus, you know, and that yeah. that sucks. And um, that really is like using the Lord's name in vain. I can't think of like any more, like any clear example of this is what it is to use the Lord's name in vain, to use the name of Jesus to to dominate, to, to overpower and, and to control. It's, it is heartbreaking. It's 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 devastating, right? That I one of my favorite writers is Rachel Held Evans, and she has she passed away, but in, in a lot of her books, she has these sections where she goes, "When I believe in God, this happens. When I believe in God," and um, as a like reading it as knowing she's a Christian writer, that really impacted me to t to hear her say, "When she believes," instead of her having to hold on to belief. And she's very clear in saying, there are days when I don't believe in God because I see people doing things that are more about power than it is about connection or relationship. And I just, yeah, I, I feel like being someone who's pursuing Christ, like a Christian now, it's just like every day I'm just devastated. And every day I'm just like, oh, like I don't, I do I do I still believe this? Do I still want to pursue this? And every time I not every time, most times Jesus is real and tangible. But there are other times when I I just have to walk I have to walk away and I have to remind myself that I have been given a spoonful of poison for a really long time. So even as I look at Christianity and this faith and the ways that nationalism, um, and the ways that like really strange politicians try to pervert what is good, it, it's really hard. That's just what it comes down to. I, I, I wish, I, I, there are days when I wish that I could be like, we're gonna believe with all of our hearts and, and continue moving forward. And, 
we're going to hold on to Christ. There, I feel like if I hold on to that, then I'm giving into this like spiritual, like I'm giving into these leaders who are forcing me into a faith that doesn't deny that I have emotions and that I'm sad and I need to find God in my sadness and my devastation. And we go back to right, the, the Hebrew Bible, that lament is an embodied experience. Like a lament is sad. Lament is heartbreaking. Lament is being in the place of hopelessness and trying to find your way through. Toxic masculinity does not allow you to lament. It tells you that you have to be faithful and move forward. It's essentially, it's like hustle culture, right? You gotta, you gotta keep, on, keep on moving, keep on fighting. Well, yeah, the fight of this faith is being able to sit in the darkness and let the Holy Spirit wrap, wrap themselves around you. And sometimes it, it's a dark place. But God is about connection and community. So how, how do we ensure that we are in these places of connection and community where the Holy Spirit is tangibly with us? Because I've said before, you want the Holy Spirit to wrap around you. Sometimes you can't feel that, but you'll feel it when you're in community with the right people. Uh, that's a good point. Um, I think that, that would be a good transition to kind of the next phase of our conversation um, of how Jesus is present in, in his context. Um, there, like, like we mentioned, in Greco-Roman culture, there are very toxic masculine things happening, institutionalized ways and, um, and whatnot. But um, we see Jesus being very present, being very intentional. Um, in some of these spaces. And so we have a couple um, passages that we want to kind of unpack. Um, and for time's sake, we'll, we'll try to um, kind of unpack these as, as, as quickly as we can. The first one is, is a more text about how Jesus is present in more institutional context. And the second is more how he's present in, in a personal kind of individualistic way. So um, the first is from Matthew 19. Um, 3 to 12, it says this, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they, no longer, uh, so they are no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let man, or let not man separate. They said to him, then why, why then did Moses command, the, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And this is the kicker. The disciple said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those whom it is given. So what's happening here is that in many ways, um, so institutionally, women had no rights when it comes to the marriage context. Um, men could divorce their wives for whatever reason. Um, he was ticked off that day. He found another one that's more attractive and, and whatnot. So women had no rights, but that was essentially a death sentence because 
um, the male were only able to be the financial source and take care of you know, all that stuff. And so there are these group of women who are working left, left and right. And so when this question gets proposed, and Jesus says, you know, actually there is, women do have a choice. There is a, <laughs> we're giving women a choice. And that was revolutionary at the time. Because before there was, where there was no way, Jesus is saying there is a way, right? And so Jesus flips the power structure, giving women the power of choice to end a marriage, um, not just the man. Um, and furthermore, if there's adultery at play, and I feel like this is important um, in our context too, uh, today is that shame is now rightfully placed on the man and not on the woman. It, this, the shame of adultery, is it, it carries over to the man in the next, um, into the next marriage. And so Jesus' Jesus's disciples knew that Jesus is flipping the power dynamics because we see in verse 10, it's like, if that's the situation, then it's better not to marry. Because he's saying, you mean that like, if, if I get married and I, have to stay with, I just have to stay with one woman? <laughs> I can't just go off and do what everyone else is doing? Um, and so Jesus is setting women free from this oppressive, male-dominated institution of marriage at the time. Um, and so that's, that's one example. And uh, we'll just go to the other text, and so feel free to chime in. Can or, I mention something? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, so let's talk about sexual immorality for a second. Because, um, mm, okay. you know, I'm just writing a book about it. Um, <laughs> but when we talk about sexual immorality within marriage, there's a lot of images that come to mind, a lot of things. And I, I've mentioned this before here, but Christ, Christ, God, Holy Spirit, all about consent. Everything Christ does, Christ creates room for consent to happen. Sexual morality within marriage also includes revoking your spouse's consent. And that's, that's one thing that Jesus talks about there. And we don't, we don't talk about that often. Um, we don't talk about the ways that, look, if you're raised in, in purity culture, you've been told, if you're a woman, you've been told that it's your job to please your man and you have to do whatever you can to please him. Otherwise, he has the right to go wherever he wants to go because it's your fault. You're not pleasing him. And I've been in enough situations where I have talked with women and I have said, it sounds like you don't know what consent is. And it sounds like you haven't been told that it's allowed to happen in your marriage. And I just want to make that perfectly clear because this is a conversation that has not been happening and it needs to happen. Not to like yeah. drop a bomb on you no, guys or no, anything. That's, <laughs> no, that's, that's good and just worth um, <laughs> marinating and sitting in that thought. I think this kind of, the next passage we're going to look at is Luke chapter 8. But, um, but the, the, Luke, the gospel of Luke is fascinating because um, the way it's written, I've, I've heard one um, um, female theologian talk about the way Luke is written is a, a lot of the times there's a comparison between men and the woman. And not, a lot of times the women end up being elevated. Like they're, they're more dignified than the men in the Gospel of Luke. And so in Luke 7, we see the sinful woman 
who is honoring Jesus and Jesus publicly honors, who, who washes the feet of Jesus and Jesus publicly honors her. And then the next chapter, we get Jesus is on his way to something, um, or he, he, he's somewhere else, and then he gets word that this 12-year-old girl is dead, and on a way there, he heals a woman who has been bleeding for 12, 12 years. And he, on the way there, he passively and privately heals this woman. And then as that happens, right after, he proactively and publicly honors her before a crowd without shame. Um, so I would love to kind of hear your take on that. Because um, it's a very kind of like, very opposite of what's happening in the culture at the time. Yeah. Yeah, so Roman, let's go back to Rome all, <laughs> all the time. Um, Latin poetry, Latin, the language of Rome, it is so wild. Like, man, Rome was a mess. It was just a, like, when you, when you start learning Latin, like, you read these basic poems, and the basic poetry is like, we went to our enemies and, like, slaughtered them all, and the blood was on our faces. Like, it, like your introduction into the language of Rome is very rooted in violence, and blood is associated with conquest, with violence in Rome. So it's, it, knowing that Jesus lived in a land that was colonized by Rome means that we also have to understand how much Roman culture infiltrated Jewish culture. Um, when women, like, women had periods, of course, this has happened forever, but the blood of women was a place of shame. So the woman who bled for 12 years, shame on shame on shame for 12 years. No one wanted to touch her. They believed she was, it, she was not cursed, if not a curse, right? She was shunned. So, so just her touching Jesus and being healed wasn't just being healed of a physical ailment, but it was being healed of the shame yeah. that was associated with her blood. And then also, because with Jesus there's always an and then also, but, <laughs> and then also, That's it, the gospel, actually. That's the gospel. <laughs> it's like, little did he know. But, and then also with, with the way Jesus heals her, and people are like, you know, there's Peter who's just like an instigator, like he's a chismosa. He's like, who did that? Like, what's going on? Like, getting all huffy puffy and like yeah. angry about it. Um, it's and, probably Instagram eight. Yeah, yeah, he's totally. <laughs> Yeah, he is, you know, from yeah. his, like, journey oh, yeah. at the end. It's like, yeah. oh, you're like, he's totally near me. Yeah. yeah. Um, I put my foot in my mouth, so, like, even though I talk boo-boo on Peter, like, I totally, I, I totally am, like, Peter, because <laughs> I'll say things out of context and be like, oh, I wish I could eat my words. Um, but, yeah, in, in healing the woman who had blood for 12 years, it is also essentially, like, an, a position of activism, because he reclaims blood in a way that is not about male conquest but about feminine honor in healing her and reviving the goodness of the feminine body but also the embodiment of it because again my thesis romans really like men men's bodies i don't know why um but yeah the just the healing of her alone there's so many dimensions in it and it's all done in like this place of, of a love that really puts her on this pedestal. Not so that she's separate from people, but it puts her on a pedestal so that she can make connection again because she, is, she has lived for 12 years in a place of loneliness 
and shame and she's been a pariah and not only is she healed now she's honored yeah. in her healing yeah. um, so let's kind of put some of this together um, we talked about what past uh, what uh, toxic masculinity is how it how we are seeing it in the church how we see Jesus engaging with past, uh, toxic masculinity so um, how do we move forward? How does the church move forward in this space? Um, and that, I, I gladly step back. And I, I, I would love to receive from you, learn from you in, in, in that. No, no pressure. Uh, um, I, I, I want to start with what feels really basic, but is actually incredibly difficult, which is feel your feelings, right? know how you feel and create the language to express it. Not in a place of defense, because once we get defensive, we escalate, and then once you escalate, the person across from you escalates, and then you, you, there's no stopping until someone else intervenes, right? But how do we express ourselves in a way where we can honor ourselves and honor the other person? I've said before, I, I had an abusive father, and it was really hard for me to express myself. And um, I, I love you, honey. I'm so sorry. My husband grew up in machismo. So, like, we have our own ver versions of toxic masculinity that we're, like, working through. And in our marriage, there, there have been times when we both had to, instead of just saying, like, I feel this way, where we just had to be, like, pause. Like, I, like, we have to pause because we don't even have the language. We just have to know that we're feeling something. And we have to let that feeling permeate and be be ready, right? And then later on, we'll be we'll be able to say, "I don't feel good about this, right? I don't, or this hurts, right? It's it is a small thing, but it is a necessary thing to feel your feelings. And I'm always on on the. Like, I'm a big fan of letting those who have the most marginalized identities be the ones who lead. Um, that's really important to me. Um, and I'm a huge bookworm. What books are we reading? Whose narratives are we following? How do we bring these narratives into a conversation? Because, yes, I read a lot, but I'm not reading what you're reading, and I really want to know what you're reading so that we can be in conversation about this, right? And then finally, there's this understanding that I think because of the way westernized, Westernism is so individual and urgent, we think we have to fix the, like we think we're gonna fix the church today. Don't put that much pressure on yourself, right? It's the small things we do. It's, it, it is, it's like the Grand Canyon started from a stream of water, right? You were just a drop of water it's not, it doesn't minimize who you are, but when drops of water come together, you carve the Grand Canyon, right? We need to recognize that we will probably be in heaven before this is completely dismantled. But we've ran the good race, as Paul says. We've done our part. And we have, we, I, I'm, I think I'm just speaking to myself. So if, <laughs> if I'm saying too much, you can like be quiet. But you can like be like quiet. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, it's hard because I so badly want to see everything 
everything demolished. I want Jericho to happen all the time. I'm like, if I get a trumpet god, could you make this work? Right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way. It takes a long time, and it happens after we die. But there, the grace is knowing that when you are able to build relationships off that are rooted in transformation, not going to say transformation, but rooted in connection, rooted in feeling and honor, then you inspire someone to do the same. And it just continues to go. Christianity is not meant to be a dominant faith, as we see in the way that our political structures work. It's meant to be a faith that liberates the marginalized. That means that we have to know what it, what it, we have, we have to recognize that we exist in an apocalypse and the only way we can get through the apocalypse is through the transformational, loving communities that we make now.